What does the word intentional mean for you? Look, our whole our whole foundation is based on that, right? We say in Arabic, you know, is niya. What is the niya? Which is what is your intention, right? And and without that, nothing has meaning. So it's all about intentionality. That every like so when our experts work, their intention is if this was the last conversation I'm going to have with this human being, how can I empower him or her so that she he or she can move forward in an incredible so not it's all about empowerment it's all about not about crutches so nia is is the foundation for everything and every like again before we began what's the nia we had right mm-hmm. we had a little catch up mm-hmm. before we began to align on our nia which is the intentionality welcome to the intentional growth podcast the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. And we are back with another episode. It is episode 290. And before we kick it off into the guest, who is a very special one and a really, really great story today, just an update. We have this intentional growth financial assessment that we launched within the last month or so. And I'm very excited because it's we've unpacked the four pillars of your financials and how your financials should be built and organized in a way to clarify where you are today and how to connect your financials and the strategic plan to the future value of your business. So Pat and I walked through uh, a bunch of videos after you get your results, but there's 23 questions. You don't need your financials. It takes probably less than about five minutes or something like that. And it's on each of the components of a financial foundation that allows you to view your company like a private equity firm. And then again, Pat and I have videos at the results page that show what good looks like and how you can use your financials to make decisions on distributions, on you know, where do you invest your money to grow the value of your business on projecting out taxes and your growth rate, all these different things that I think a lot of people have ambiguity around. We use the financial assessment as a way to clarify what's important and then show you how to actually get where you want to go. So check it out. We got the link in the show notes or you can go to intentionalgrowth.io. So on to our guest. Fiesel is on the show today and he is the founder of Kinetic Care and he started this business from a crazy event that happened to him when he was 35. Well, long story short, and you're going to be able to get into it uh, in this interview, Fiesel was able to leave the third, uh, leave the family business. He was a third generation of an entrepreneur family, and he created a business with his brother and some of his family members where they scaled this company internationally to over 10,000 employees in over 15 countries by the time he was 35, where he got some very, very unlucky news about his diagnosis with cancer. And so Fiesel is going to walk us through his entire journey of building this business and even though he didn't drink, didn't do drugs, didn't even drink coffee or tea, he ended up with this cancer that was no one could figure out and how that shifted his entire world paradigm for how he viewed the business and how he was able to get rid of the business un- unbelievably fast because of the work that they had done ahead of time. But then 
what this journey did for him and what he read, uh, how he recalibrated his priorities and why he decided to stick through this and conquer this challenge that most people would have probably, it would have probably crippled them and myself. So I am extremely excited for you to listen to this episode because I think we all assume that nothing bad is going to happen to us while we're on top of the world, conquering our business, conquering our marketplace or whatever it is. But we know that we have to realize we're all mortal and what are we doing today to make sure that we're living the best life that we have? So this is a combination of an awesome business story, but then an awesome journey through some challenges that I don't think any of us would ever wish on our on our worst enemy. So thank you so much for tuning in, and I really hope you enjoy this interview with Fiesel. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Fiesel, how are we? This uh, well, it's evening in Minnesota, and it is what time is it actually there? It's uh, nine fifteen, and uh, and are you in are you in Hong Kong yeah, today? I'm in Hong is Kong, okay. and uh, haven't had my workout, so we're supposed to do an audio. Now it's turned into a video, so I'm still <laughs> wearing. I was going to say, well, we're going <laughs> to <laughs> we're going to tell the audience it's Sunday night in Minnesota, and you're you're going to hit the gym after this. So bear with us in our uh, in our physical well, the gyms, appearances. The gyms are tuning. closed, and I don't go to the gym. I use my own little space within the apartment. Uh, we're having a, a good experience with COVID now, the real experience. So we haven't the had we haven't had a real experience in Hong Kong yet. Now the party started. Well, you close your eyes these days and wherever, as long as you're jumping up and doing jumping jacks, you can have a gym wherever you want, essentially, at this point. <laughs> so I I have to say, I'm so excited for this conversation. You and I have had a couple conversations getting to know each other, and you have just one wild background. The reason I asked where, where you are today, because when you told me your background, you were like, just were ping-ponging countries like I would do in cities that are within like 10 miles from myself. So let's just, why don't you just give the listeners... Just a, a flyby of kind of the the overarching, you know, how you got to where you are today and what you're doing. And then we'll go back and I, I really am excited to hear some of the earlier stories um, before your life dramatically took a turn. All right. So, I mean, that's that's a lot you just asked. That could be the whole episode. I was going to say, so, I don't know how you want to slice yeah, that I, up. <laughs> I think let's just slice up where they understand a little bit of background, right? So I'm, I'm of mm-hmm. Indian origin. I'm Gujarati originally. But uh, my father and myself and my brother born in the Congo. So we're born in the Congo. Because it was the Belgian Congo, the head office was in Belgium. So I grew up in Belgium. Then I went to boarding school in Canada, outside of Toronto. Then I decided to go to university in the US. So I went to UPenn in Philadelphia. And as you know, most Wharton grads, we either go into consulting or into investment banking. And those who want to play it safe go into accounting. Okay, so <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So I decided to have a big ego and join investment banking, but uh, I joined um, a French investment bank doing cross-border M and A, France USA. I speak fluent French and I know French accounting, so I did that for a couple of years and realized that it was going to take ten years to become partner. And you know, as a 
as a entrepreneur who already started running their first business funny enough when I was 10 in school. I used to sell candies, I used to buy candies from the, from the um, gas station and then sell them in school so that I could, I could invest in my train set. I had miniature train sets and I used to love firecrackers. So those are my, that was my business to be able to afford the firecrackers to blow up stuff, which we won't go into right say, now. So those had to have gone together, right? I buy the train, buy the firecracker, I blow them both up. No, I have to do it again. No, the, the, the train I kept, the stuff I blew up was not, okay. was not mine. Okay. <laughs> so, so yeah, and, and so basically I'm, I'm third generation. So my dad's generation, um, him and his uncle both had a, had a heart attack. And unfortunately, his uncle passed away. That was in 1986. And this led to a hostile takeover of the company. And during that process, my father asked us what we wanted to do. And we said, look, we would like to raise our kids in the first world or quasi-first world. And therefore, we would prefer not to come back to the Congo. And so it happened that, you know, the Berlin Wall fell. And uh, funny enough, in 1981, we had gone on holiday uh, to Eastern Europe. So all these places, Hungary, Czech, Poland, all that region, when it was still, you know, you went there and they had the, yeah, yeah, snipers everywhere. They weren't Nerf wires. guns. Yeah, yeah, like the real, <laughs> yeah. the real deal. And that was our holiday in 81. And, um, and my father had been doing business, you know, in Eastern Europe since the 70s. So he knew the train as a, as a country, not, not what we ended up doing. And so we were looking for an opportunity, so we entered. So my cousin, my brother, and I entered into Eastern Europe, at that time Hungary, to set up our own um, clothing business, textile business, I would say. And that was after, after Wall, your stint at Wall Street? Well, no, right? so I was still on Wall Street when they started, okay? So I was still on Wall Street, and my, hungry, my cousin moved to Hungary, and we started for second-hand clothing, and then clothing, and then moved to textiles, and then became over time the largest distrib- non-food distributor to the hypermarkets, and then over time the largest licensee to Disney, Warner, Cartoon Network, the football teams in the region. So Hungary, Czech, Poland, Romania, the whole region. We just didn't go into at that time Russia because of protection, and you know it's 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 a different world, right? We we prefer to stay low key and not uh, put our expose ourselves into situations that uh, could end a little differently than we would like to put it politely. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so I volunteered to move to Hong Kong in, and I did so in April of 1992 to set up the buying office for the Eastern European operation. And at the same time decided to start trading in sub-Saharan Africa. So you take the equator and down, and all those countries. So I went and I selected um, one client per country and build the trading business into those countries. So that's that's the background of how we ended up Hong Kong, Eastern Europe. And at that time, my brother was in Western Europe. He was in Brussels, Belgium. Also started a clothing company. That's uh, and 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 I know because you have such a multi-dimensional story. I'm 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 even. 
I was thinking about this conversation all day and I'm like, I don't know how, what, what ground we're going to cover. Cause we're only going to have like an hour. <laughs> I think you should just keep going and then we can go, we can go back and we can talk about some of the crazy things that you were doing in the business, because even like the micro stories you were telling me as we were just shooting the, shooting the breeze on the calls, like, yeah, you were doing some stuff in these different countries that I think a lot of people, when they think that they've got challenges in business, I think you've probably had slightly different versions of challenges, but what, what, as you were growing the business, what maybe, you know, cliff notes and some of the milestones, and then you had this big awakening that I think a lot of people listening in when they're thinking that the business is going to be like, you know, I'm going to die in the, you know, the corner office. No one really wants to, but that's kind of like a phrase, but you know, you had some interesting challenges that I think we should cover and then we can go back and unpack some of the different parts. Well, yeah, look, I mean, we, we, we started, um, you know, at a fantastic time in terms of, of the world, right. You know, Eastern Europe had just opened up. So it was carte blanche. You could build whatever you want. Um, just to remind that, you know, at that time, H&M and Zara and all the other players did not exist. So um, fashion was basically for the wealthy, right? In the sense of colors, like you were only fashionable mm-hmm. if you if you were wealthy, right? Because the brands were the ones who were able to have that. And, um, you know, our mission ended up becoming a mission to, you know, democratize fashion. Right. So even when even when um, Disney came to us and it was fun because Tesco, they had gone to Tesco, which I'm sure it's the British uh, hypermarket. I know in the U.S. So I have to kind of highlight some things, maybe. <laughs> and uh, they asked, you know, who 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 are the players? And they said, well, these are you know, these guys are the Procter and Gamble of clothing, which is the greatest compliment you could ever get. No and yeah. um, and so when they came. You know, we asked if our quality standards were good enough, and this was my cousin, not me negotiating, and if the quality standards were enough, and they said yes. And then we started, they started to have that conversation. And normally, you know, Disney is in those stores, and they're very expensive and all that jazz. And uh, we said, well, if you want to work with us, we will, what is your royalty? And then they shared the royalty, right? And we said, we will add that, the royalty to our existing price and sell Disney at that price. And they were shocked, right? They were like, what do you mean? I said, and we started to remind them who watches the movies and, you know, and their cartoons and all of that. And of course it's everyone, right? It's not just the wealthy, but at that time, the clothing, which still today is not very affordable to, to, to Jomo and Harry, right? Um, yeah. And, and, and they agreed, right? So we ended up having a, a, a product that was accessible to everyone because that was our goal, right? Was to be able to have the, you know, the average person be able to afford the Disney, the Cartoon Network, the Warner Brothers and be in fashion. And we were the only Mm -hmm. company pretty much, I think, I don't know about the world, but at least in Europe that had licenses to clothing, bags, home textiles, which means bed sheets, towels, all of that, Mm -hmm. shoes, like the whole nine yards, right? Because we, we played above board. Right. So remember, this mm-hmm. is this is a long time ago. Right. You were I don't know how old you were. I think you were hopefully not wearing your diapers. I was but... It depends on what part of the 80s you're referring <laughs> to. I was 90s. either non-existent or just like puking all over my parents. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> Full disclosure, I'm 35, which is a number we're going to get back to in your story. Hey, I, you know, before you keep going, I I wanted to ask you, like, 
third generation family business and highly intelligent individual because you're in Morton, you're now on Wall Street. What was your driving why? Like, you know, what what was driving you that was definition of success? And, you know, with, especially as you're working with your your other family members to grow this, um, what, what what was it that was driving Look, you? Look, initially, let's, let's be very, I'll be very honest, right? That I wanted to be financially independent. I didn't want to depend on my father or the family to um, support me, right? So when I did graduate, I got a sign-in bonus. You know, that's how Wall Street works. And I was financially independent. Um, unlike my friends, I lived in my own apartment. I didn't share because I stayed in rent control, which if you know New York, that's uh, much more affordable, right? And I used to be able to walk to work 20 blocks from my office, right? So I was on 59th and Park. So initially it was about being financially independent. So even in this case, my father was kind enough to give us a loan and not ask for shareholding, right? So he gave us a loan of 200,000 US to start Eastern Europe, Hungary specifically, and 150,000 US to start Hong Kong. So the drive initially was to be financially independent, right? Without depending on this, you know, extremely successful father, family, etc. And then obviously, like you heard, right, the first step in Eastern Europe was, yeah, we started a brand of clothing, but then over time realized the discrepancy, right, between the have and the have nots. And we said, look, you know, we're, we're going to do our part to democratize, right, to make, make things. And even when we, you know, I'll fast forward, when we went into, into Africa, which was from 2000, you know, the mission statement was to bring to the third world what the first world takes for granted. Right. And again, and again, that was really about bringing accessibility and improving quality of life, but making it affordable. Right. And I'll, and I'll, and I'll pinpoint to that just, to be, you know, sorry to interrupt you, is the fastest negotiation we ever had on a product. And I'm talking about now Africa. Okay. To bring into any of the countries. And I'm talking war torn. So I'm talking Angola, Congo. Sudan, Burundi, okay, all civil war. I know you're maybe in school at that time, so I don't know how much you, you know about it, but these are the CNN, you know, top line story countries, right? The fastest was nine months. So we played, so when you're asking about the war, so it's like, how can you bring first world, right? And bring it to the third world. So we were able to speak the first world language. We were able to provide the transparency again, you know, for, for whether it was Disney or whatever that, the audits, you know, they're very, these are very, you know, clear cut. Yeah, they're very structured yes. engagements. And especially yeah. if you're going to be representing them yes. with other pla other places yes. across the world. Yes. So so the thing is that we, we, we understood, we were able to speak the lingo. We learned their language in quickly, right? Because, you know, they all have words they use that, you know, nobody's heard of. And, um, and we were able to provide the transparency actually beyond what they ever asked for. And I'll be very honest, way beyond whether it was the banks, mm -hmm. whether it was the, the companies we represented, but also be able to negotiate real hardball, which is, you know, whether you want to say it's the Gujarati or whether it's the, the Wharton, I think it's more the Gujarati than the Wharton, but um, to be able to bring to the people an affordability, right? So for example, Pampers, to be able to bring the affordability of one diaper at night so that the child could sleep through and the mother would get rest, right, for brain development and rest and recovery. 
right? Again, when it came to sanitary pads, again, you know, the heavy flow, which I know people don't want to hear about, mm-hmm. but it's the reality where, you, you know, and the mamas are the core of the businesses in most of these countries, right? When I say that that's what they're called, I'm not saying in a derogatory way. And, and again, giving them the support so they can do their work in a, in, in a comfortable manner, right? So mm-hmm. these are examples. Which is no, it's no small thing. I mean, <clears throat> like you said, talk about take for granted, right? I mean, people are getting their boxes of diapers shipped to them in 25 minutes because of Amazon these days. They're, they're not used to not even, it's like not a, a question of, am I going to have that? It's more of like, when can I have that? And, you know, you were telling me a couple uh, micro stories on when you talk about negotiations in these countries that you're going into, you're not talking about negotiating with some, you know, college kid in Target or Amazon or Walmart, right? <laughs> you're talking about like legit negotiation. Maybe talk a little bit about when you, you were telling me that street story, when you were going in and you're walking the streets, uh, which was a little bit different than some of the some of the different um, people in the countries had experienced before. Because, and I can't even imagine, especially as capitalism is flowing into these countries, but and you're kind of riding on that capitalism horse. How, like what, 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 did all of that mean as you were coming in to the people and to the governments? You see, there's, there's two things, right? One, of course, you know, you want to build, you know, you want to build a, a company, right? You want to, you want to, you want to crush it, right? The scorecard, the bottom line mm-hmm. was your scorecard, right? But you focused on the middle, not the top, the bottom. You focused on the middle. That was the core, right? Because if you focused on the middle, you know, the top and bottom took care of itself, right? And when I say that, I'll, I'll, I'll reframe it. It was, our goal was okay. First, we were the only ones that owned both sides. Okay, so we were the, not only owned. Sorry, I want I want to specify that had owners on both sides. So on the buy side and the sell side, everywhere we were, they were owners. Okay, so there were people 100% with heart on the ground, and those people 100% heart on the buy side, which was me on this side, right? And of course, the organization, not not just me. And so, so the thing was was that. Because we had that, but even then we said, how can we play a game, right? The game is in the game of business, right? Mm-hmm. Where they're not able to compete. And where do we focus that they're not focusing on? So what we did was we didn't focus in the main cities. And I learned this from my dad, and I'll give you an example of my dad. So my father set up a matchbox factory, you know, the old days, matches. Okay, mm-hmm. so it sets up a matchbox factory, and the main factory is owned by the president, right? And oh, one geez. of his, which you know, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not some like slight competition there, right? <laughs> okay, <laughs> and then you have you have his friends, you know, creating consortium to also set up one, right? So they call him, they say, "What do you think?" And he said, mm, "Not a good idea." Right. And of course, they're thinking, oh, you know, he doesn't want us to come and become his competitor. Right. He's like, okay, whatever. And then you're in the big city, which we're in Kinshasa, the big city. And everybody's like, oh, you know, he failed. Like he's failing. Right. And actually, he wasn't. What he was doing was in the capital city where you had the highest population and the most hoo-ha, he Mm -hmm. he had minimum distribution. His whole focus was on the interior. So it looked like he was failing, but actually he was crushing it because he was focusing on the rest of the country. Remember, a population of 50 million, right? We did the same thing in Angola, right? Where it's a population of 18, 20 million. 
7 million is in Rwanda, but the rest of the、mm-hmm. country is bigger.、Mm-hmm. But most、mm-hmm. people spent 75% of their revenue was in Rwanda, the capital, and 25% in the rest of the country. We were、mm-hmm. the opposite. So we sent our A team to the interior. And remember, the advantage of the interior is that your overhead is much lower.、Mm-hmm. Right? So we were running companies at overheads in the interior of 5%. Okay?、Mm. So that way, I mean, 5%, right? Even if you made 20 points on top or 25 points, I mean, your bottom line is pretty healthy. Right? Yeah, right. Okay. Right. So, so that's the thing. How, so, the strategy that if you're asking, you know, if there's people running businesses, how can I play a different game? What are they、mm-hmm. playing that I have no chance in? Right? In our case, it was they're on the ground, they've been there forever. Funny enough, in the Congo, my dad's ex former company was one of our competitors, right? Which is pretty hilarious, right? And、uh, <laughs> <That is> good. <laughs> told you I'd be independent, Pops. <laughs> no, but he, he, they don't, my dad didn't own any. Remember, it was a hostile takeover. So it's, That's right. it's, yes, his, yes, it's yes. his cousins. But,、um, you know, and that was, you know, for five years until I got sick. And so, so that's the game is that, okay, how do I play? So that was one part, right? That you, you strategize and focus where they're not focusing. So, when they、mm-hmm. were focusing on the capital, we were focusing on the interior. When they started to focus on the interior, because they started to realize that you know, we're running out of up- upside, then we attacked、mm-hmm. the capital and then balanced out 50 50. So, that's how、wow. we played. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, there were cities in the Congo, I mean, one city called Lubumbashi, right, where everybody was struggling because it was, you know, remember, Congo is big. So, the, it's,、mm-hmm. it's one country, but it's influenced very differently. So, the, the West, Is very different, it's very European style. The East is、mm-hmm. very East African influence, and the South、mm-hmm. is very South African influence. So, what works on this side doesn't work on this side. So, you、mm-hmm. need a completely independent thought process for the East, the South, and the West. If the people、mm-hmm. are controlling it, sitting in the West,、mm-hmm. which is a capital city, not gonna work. And so,、mm-hmm. because of that, in a city like Mombashi, we were crushing seven figures. Wow. Okay, bottom line, just one city when everybody else was struggling because they didn't、mm-hmm. have an independent thought process and zero control by the West on how the buying was done, what was bought, right? We had an independent rock star who's now the head of that company now, the whole head actually, right? Amazing guy who, who just was incredible, right? So it's how do you take a country, break it up? Even Angola was the same, right? So the bottom of Angola was all Namibia and South Africa fed,、mm. right? While the upper sides were very different, right? So you, you had to break the countries up into countries, right? And think、mm-hmm. independently, right? And so, you know, it's, it, it was a different game. So that was, that was game one, that was different. The second game that、mm-hmm. was different was really about the long game, right? That how do we change lives? How do we improve quality of life? How do we bring the affordable while the unaffordable and make it affordable? Then you're playing a different game, right? Because a lot、mm-hmm. of people, I mean, I mean, a lot of my competitors, right? They were serving the poor. So they thought, what do the poor know? Something's better than nothing, right? And our focus group, our, I wouldn't say, I don't know how to say it, like our, our standard community, our standard、okay. was our own family. So, when I sold food,、mm-hmm. it was, would, my cho- would, I allow- would I have my children eat this? 
And if it was yes, then I would sell it. So it was a very different standard of operating. Remember, so we're representing, we're bringing in Ariel, which is detergent, right? Procter & Gamble. We're bringing in Pampers, Always, Gillette, you know, Dettol, all the brands that we all use in mm-hmm. homes, right? Mm-hmm. Even when we did, that we all use yeah. in our homes yeah. today. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and even the brands that we created, also the standard was extremely, extremely high. So the pen we sold, our main competitor was BIC. I mean, we crushed it. They were not happy campers, okay? Um, <laughs> because we analyzed the pen to the T. We said, let's look at what are the three to five key components of BIC that makes BIC BIC, right? That's an example. And then we said, okay, what can we afford to replicate? Some you cannot because of technology, right? Because they control it globally, right? Like Gillette, mm-hmm. the blade, you can't even try to find a blade factory. It just doesn't exist. They've bought everybody and controlled oh, no. everybody. I don't know about today. I'm talking, oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. these guys these guys know how to play ball. Yeah, yeah no, uh, th- th- we, we got enough monopolies going on yeah. globally here. I, I'm, I'm, I'm following yeah. you. <laughs> I don't know what it was back then, but I know it's probably only just exacerbated these yeah. days. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's more or less, but, yeah, I mean, it's the game's changed. But um, so, yeah, so it's it was really looking at really, you know, quality products at affordable prices but to change lives, right? So that's a long game, right? So if somebody else is playing a different game, which is the top line and bottom line, and they're really looking mm-hmm. at, yeah, but what do they know, right? Because that's the reality, right? What does, remember that time there was no social media. There was, there was no, you know, the mobile phones we were using in Eastern Europe, we had satellite phones. I'm talking about the very interior, not, not, not hungry, mm-hmm. those were normal phones, right? So it was, it was, you know, data was not, it was not available, right? So, so it, was, it, it was about playing a different game. And once you play a different game, you're competitors, but not competitors, right? So mm-hmm. that's the thing. And then you're asking about the story of, 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 you know, I never went to almost any of my offices, okay? Like in, in Angola, I don't know, in 20 years, I probably went twice, right? Because my role, you know, if I want to sit in an office, I might as well sit in Hong Kong, right? It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Right, beautiful view, beautiful space, you know. Um, so there it was all street, right? So I spent a lot of time on the streets, um, you know, going store by store, um, walking the streets, talking to mamas. Eventually there were stores, right, middle stores, and then eventually hypermarkets, mm-hmm. right, in countries like mm-hmm. Angola. Um, but at that time there wasn't, right? In the beginning it was all, and, and again, very low-key, jeans, T-shirt, nobody knew who I was. My competitors didn't even know what I look like, right? In most countries, right? And the people on the street. I mean, I have people, I was telling you the story where the guy, you know, I haven't been to Angola now for two years and, you know, we've sold the company, but um, till the end, didn't believe I was the owner. He was like, which crazy owner would come here in the middle of Lubangu in the market every, you know, every four months and talk to us? Like, so funny enough, right? He's literally saying to my well, face. And, and you're truly listening listening to the people, right? I mean, you're listening to the people using the qualities that you're using to play the long game. And this is not a, like, in listening to the people, like you said, walking down the the markets, I mean, I don't know what people are thinking right now, but it's the markets are probably not the markets that you experienced, right? Like, this is not like, oh, I went and strolled through Walmart and Target to see what shelf space people were on. <laughs> like, I'm assuming it was a little bit different based on some of the things that you're saying. So like, you went above and beyond and put yourself at risk, like probably physically multiple I mean, I times was, to get I, some of the- I was comfortable. Most people wouldn't be comfortable, right? 
You know, I mean, obviously we're, you know, I mean, look, I'll tell you a story. When I was trading in, in Uganda, I walked in to the market in Kampala and this young kid looks at me and he says, hmm, obviously Idi Amin didn't do a good job, right? Idi Amin was the one who kicked out all the foreigners, mm-hmm. including the Indians. And here I was an, an Indian in a market, the ratio was 5,000 to one, right? Or basically I was probably the only non you know, not <laughs> the, the guy, yeah. right? <laughs> and uh, he just looked at me and he said that. And I just looked back and I smiled and then I went and I worked with the mamas like I usually do. And I left right now. That was basically, you know, basically saying that, you know, why are you here? You don't, you don't belong here, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. But that's, that's life, right? That happens everywhere. That's not just in Uganda, yes, right? That happens, you know, it happens in everywhere. America. Yeah, everywhere. <laughs> Quite no, a bit. I mean, everywhere yep. there is, there are people who are going to say things that are, you know, still living in their space, right? Whatever that is. And they're going to make comments and we've all had to deal with it, right? And, you know, with my, my first and last name, right? And that talk that I've had a beard since I'm 18. Today, it's a little longer because... You, you know, we were supposed to have because I because I, I, I sabotaged <laughs> our audio our audio interview. <laughs> so um, so yeah, it's you know it's 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 been an ex, you know an experience, right? I mean, you know. So you did all of this before you were my age, as of today, and so when you think, and I don't know what numbers are public or ones we were willing to share, but like you went, for, I mean you. You uh, just to bring up a couple of the numbers you already brought up is you borrowed 150 grand and 200 grand and you turned it into and it wasn't all easy peasy, right? And, and but you turned that into a multinational business that all by the time you were my age. And so I don't know what numbers to give people just the scale. And and I don't know because you're very calm and collective right now. And I know we're going to kind of start shifting as the story takes a turn, but like. Were you always like that while you were hustling and traveling the world or were you nonstop or? No, I mean, look, I was a, I was a tough cookie, right? So if, if I'm based in Hong Kong and we had offices in Europe and other countries and um, when something wasn't done, I'll give you a real hard response, right? So, um, you know, and I would still be in the office and they didn't do their job and they're seven hours behind me and I'm still at work, right? And then the next day I would ask, and the questions I would ask were as brutal as, which is old school, did you have time to eat? Did you have time to sleep? And did you have time to go to the bathroom? Okay, so that's the level of hard ass. Okay, you want to hear it? <laughs> I'm giving you. <laughs> so you went to the bathroom and you did not do your report. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You had time to sleep, you had time to eat, which means you had time. So don't tell me you didn't have time. Because if you didn't do any of those oh, basic dude. fundamentals, then you can tell me you didn't have time. But think about it, right? I'm seven hours ahead of you. I'm still in the office and you tell me, you go home and I'm trying to call you for the report, right? And you're gone and you tell me you don't have time. Come on. (laughs) Ryan, have a little grace Uh, on the hard ass. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. And and, uh, you were were telling me also like um, when you were in more a recent negotiation that uh, someone thought of you as kind of this you know, like, you know, Buddhist kind of just hanging and just nonchalant. And then you started talking about some M&A and like, oh, they don't know what they're dealing with here. No, it's just <laughs> it's my, like someone... my, my, my team always laughs. Right. And, and, and the thing is I have all, I mean, I've been here <clears throat> 30 years and, um, 98%, which I know, you know, HR wise or government 
you know, wise, I would get in a lot of trouble. I've hired women. Okay. So 98% of my team in Hong Kong have been women. Okay. Even today I have one male in the, the head of well-being, but of course, within the expert team, there's obviously it's a mix, right? But, um, but yeah, it's, it's looked So the business was built to go up to, you know, a few, you know, in the hundreds of millions, right. You know, and, uh, Eastern Europe, you know, we had our experiences, right. So 1998, the Asian financial crisis, we, all our retained earnings got wiped out. So from 91 to 98, we built a good threshold, right. You can imagine we were, we were making at that time, you know, good seven figures and it all got wiped out in 1998 in the Asian financial crisis. And then in 2000, we started to rebuild. So from 2000, we rebuilt. And that's where a lot of the agencies and, you know, it was a complete shift in, in, in thought process. And uh, so by 2005, when I was your age, the business was in the hundreds of millions. And we had about 10,000 employees, including some interesting ones like armed security guards with MK-16s <laughs> as a deterrent, <laughs> not, not for any other reason. And just to clarify to the listeners, the only time that was in Angola, the only time they ever used the gun was once when we received a, a, a pharmaceutical container and the mama started to fight, like literally fight. So he shot in the air to calm the situation down. And in 20 years, that was the only time any of the guards ever used the bullet or their weapon. Okay, just to clarify. Yeah, so it was it, a deterrent. It says a lot. Mm-hmm. So you just had to play smart that you don't get attacked and et cetera, et cetera. So what happened? Let's get into the what happened, right? Because you're, I mean, you all your retained earnings get wiped out. You've get you've got the energy to rebuild again, and like what changed everything. You mean the, the second the second hit? This yeah, like you know, what, where where were you, and what happened when you realized that it wasn't like when your plan that was in your head had to adapt a little bit because of some news that you got. No, I mean, look, I I you know I I was on top of the world. I thought you know, as the USA, my shit didn't stink, right? And um, and we're doing really well, right? across, you know, we were in seven countries in Africa, we were in five countries in Eastern Europe, we were running buying offices in Hong Kong, Dubai and Paris. Um, we were in the clothing, the whole textile clothing side in Eastern Europe and Africa, we had a pharma division, we had, you know, we we're the first ones to bring anti HIV drugs into Africa. So those mm-hmm. conversations, which you were referring to before were very different because it was heads of state, mm-hmm. it wasn't, you know, yes, ministers of health, but mostly heads of state who gave you the blessing right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then we had fast-moving consumer goods, like I was describing the Procter & Gamble's, the Gillette, the Reckon Bitkeezers. Then you had the white goods, which is, you know, the hires of the world, which is fridges, freezers, you know, washing machines, Jeez. those elements. And then you had commodities, general commodities, which my, my brother um, ran and managed, right? So, so I spent a lot of times, like again, when we say differential, I've spent a lot of times in homes, like I've spent more mm-hmm. time in homes, African homes, than you can imagine, right? Wow. Because yeah, I mean, that was my thing. I would go and understand mm-hmm. how do they wash, how do they eat, what's the cooking utensil, what does a home look like, what does a space look like, you know, how much water is there, 
what's happening, you know, if, especially with detergent. That there's hand, hand discoloration of women because of the chemicals mm-hmm. in the detergent, right? So these are all the things that we were really under, trying to understand so that we had depth in what we were providing. It wasn't just, oh, Procter & Gamble's great, let's just do this now, right? It was, it was really, mm-hmm. you know, do your homework to the T. So yeah, so you know, so you're in a good space, and um, you'd said ten thousand employees too around that time. Yeah, it was. I mean, I I I I stopped counting how many reports I used to get and the people, but it was a lot of people, a lot of people. And was it, I don't know if it was when you were saying that you were like walking on the beach when someone asked you how many reports you had or something like that, and you, you stopped counting. You're like yeah, enough. So what what happened to that that slowed you down? Once you well, let's it's, get into it's. it's you know, God, life, the big boss, you know, goddess, whatever, you know, we always say, right? She, he, it's all a debate, but it doesn't matter. Yeah, so I I, um, I went on holiday and before I went on holiday, I, I was, I took a bite of food and I was choking. And um, so it was not, you know, not good. And then I went on holiday and every meal, my first bite, I was choking. And uh, well, you know, Let's, let's do something different. I'll tell you the real story, which I've never told. So basically I was doing yoga every day. And uh, the fifth day I was doing yoga, the master said, why don't you do a, you know, let's try a headstand. And I said, well, I've, my back isn't good. And that's, that was the response of my body during that 1998 crash was a slip disc. Mm. Okay, just as a mm. reference. So you see the alarms. These mm-hmm. are alarms that go off mm. before you get the big mm-hmm. kick. And so I was like, okay, so the last day I do a shoulder stand, right? So I finish the shoulder stand, it's lunchtime, I go eat lunch, I take a nap and I wake up and I have, you know, to take the boys to, the boys are one and three, to take the boys to the beach. And I'm washing my face and I see this big bump on my neck. And I'm like, whoa, what is that? And it was literally half a tennis ball sticking out of my neck. And it wasn't there when I went to bed. And I was like, okay, this is not funny. So I'm pressing it. It's not hurting, but it's hard. And I'm like, okay, this is not good. So I pick up the phone. I call the, you know, and I was staying at a very high-end resort. And I said, can you please call back the master? Right. And they said, okay, what happened? I said, no, just call the master back. I need to ask some questions. So of course the beach got canceled. And I went and I asked the guy, I go, have you seen this before? And he was poor guy freaking out. Right. Um, and he goes, no. And I said, do you know what it could be? He goes, no, I have no idea. And he's pressing and he's, you know, he's, this is like some really, you know, this is in Bali, right? So these are Indonesian mm-hmm. real master guys. And he's like, look, we don't know what it is. And he was an energetic guy, so he didn't understand. So I'm like, okay, fine, you know, go home. So I pick up the phone the next morning. So I first call my, my internist, right? He's my main doc. He's, you know, I used to travel with a medical kit to these countries, right? So I was equipped. And I said, look, you know, I'm, I'm swallowing and I'm having issues. And, you know, he goes, look, when you, I'm going to be out of town. When you come in, we'll do an endoscopy and a colonoscopy, right? Because at that time, again, what pilots and truck drivers have is, you know, is, is fissures. And that's what I was experiencing. That's because I took so many long-haul flights that mm-hmm. that's what happens. When you stay in stationary for too long, you can develop a fissure, right? Mm-hmm. And um, which, again, I'm not a pilot and I'm not a truck driver, but mm-hmm. you can imagine mm-hmm. the flights, right? It's a lot of flights. Yeah, right, right. And, um, and then I called my orthopedic surgeon, right? The slip disc guy. And I go, look, you know, I don't know. I, I, I went and I told him the story and then I told him about the neck. Of course, at that time, there's no video. 
And he said, hmm, you got two, two scenarios, a hematoma, which is a blood clot, or it's a tumor. But he goes, I've never heard of a tumor coming out in such a short time that you go to bed and there's nothing right. and it's you wake crazy. up, you know, 90 minutes later. And so that's why yogis ask you to do it's anti-gravity. Anything that's not serving you will express itself. Whoa. And that's actually what happened. So I went back um, and again, I'll be very honest that I've again, not said this where I was actually misdiagnosed. So what happened was that they, I wasn't able to go to the hospital I normally go to, to do the, to do the CT scan. And I went to a different hospital and the, obviously I found out later, the radiologist wasn't paying attention and confirmed that, yeah, I mean, they were, I had 10 tumors and the guy didn't see, there were three in your face and, uh, (laughs) yeah. So, and unfortunately the orthopedic surgeon didn't look at the images, which was the last time he ever, ever did not look at images from that day. So they said, you know, and then in the endoscopy, colonoscopy, they're going in and the tumors were around. So the tumor was outside the esophagus. You got like golf ball, tennis ball size shit in your body and you got all these doctors and they just like, nope, you're good. So <laughs> I mean, like, what? They, so they said that what I had a heck? hematoma and guess what? Then I traveled. I went to Mozambique. I went to the Congo. Now I went to Mozambique. Then I went to Angola. Then I went to the Congo. And I was running out of gas. Like I would be, because I, I was working 16 hours a day, no problem. And I was with all these multinational guys and they're like, Face, are you okay? Because I was running out of energy, right? Mm-hmm. And even that holiday I took, when I came back, they said, Faisal, you've lost weight. And I had lost five kilos in a week. Whoa. These are all the signs, right? So was it still in your neck? Like, can yeah. you still physically see it? Yeah. Now, you mean, or you mean then? No, no, when you yeah. were traveling yeah. around, like, so you I would yeah. wear a shirt and I would, I would like kind of wear, you know, I remember I wore t shirts. <laughs> I started wearing shirts to the trip because I had to kind of cover it, you know? And uh, yeah, they gave me a pill to eat 30 minutes before the meal so that the esophagus would relax, right? Because of the reflux, hmm. you know? So yeah, so I traveled. And then even I was in Pakistan, we went to buy land because we we're putting, you know, I was bored. So we we're putting a, we we're putting factories. I wanted to put a truck factory, a motorcycle factory factory all kinds of crazy stuff yeah we were that's what i do when i'm bored yeah, too hypermarket we were, we, were, we were negotiating to put a hypermarket <laughs> look ryan big ego big 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 project <laughs> and when you have a big ego and a big project when you're bored your board your boredom projects become very big as yeah, well pakistan <laughs> happened because you know the young my younger my younger son um couldn't couldn't be safely delivered in Hong Kong. It was during SARS. So we had to leave. And so all those projects in Pakistan happened was because I had a three hour window of nothing to do. <laughs> I'm being honest, dude, you're asking me. I'm telling I, you, know, I know. I, had, I worked. All while you have a golf ball, Kong, golf ball six, tumor in the side, yeah, side of your neck. Six to nine, I would work with Hong Kong. Then I would eat breakfast with my brother-in-law. Then we'd go to work and then we worked from 10 to one right? 10 to 1, 1 Then we'd eat lunch and then Hong Kong was closed. So I had nothing to do. So from three to six, I had nothing to do. So I ended up looking at 
motorcycle project, car, auto, auto manufacturing. And I'm talking big brands. I'm not some mumpufu guys, right? And hypermarket. <laughs> we can laugh now, but this is the truth. So don't. As you say, you're laughing now, but you're also kind of like, oh, we know how the story turned. So, yes, I went on this trip, then came back, and my energy was dropping. And then I just, you know, I, I moved homes. I could, I could barely sit for an hour. I couldn't work. I couldn't, like, I couldn't do anything. So I called the doc. He was traveling again. And I said, guys, you need to start from scratch as if you don't know me from Adam. And they said, what? He goes, look, something's wrong. So he, you know, I literally wrote the order on my carton in the bedroom. Like I wrote, you know, because I know, I knew by then with all the stuff I was, what to do. Mm-hmm. And I went to the, to had a, I had my last lunch. I call it the last supper, the last lunch negotiating a hypermarket for Pakistan, okay, in a private <laughs> club <laughs> with some big boys, okay, actually called Dairy Farm, some of the biggest guys in Asia, and then I took out my, my jacket, whatever, and I went and I did my, you know, blood test, x-ray, whatever, and then I went to the other dock, you know, from there, because they're the same building, and he says, oh, Faisal, you called, you know, the other dock, right, because you called so-and-so, and I said, yes, he goes, Faisal, you're you know, unnecessarily stressing out, you know, just take it easy. This is not what you think, you know, just that. And while I'm talking and then there's a knock on the door and there's the nurse from the other clinic. And I'm like, okay. She goes, doc, you need to see this. And he's like, okay. And it takes out, you know, takes out the x-ray, puts it up. And this is, you know, and his, and is a white guy, his face turns white. Okay. So he's <laughs> not <I> see through <laughs> and I'm like, okay. And I look over. And I go, doc, where's my lung? And he goes, we have a problem. So I had a, a, a tumor the size of a Rubik's cube that was pressing against my lung and my lung had collapsed. So that was the big tumor. That was secondary. That was the lymph node, the tennis ball. So the, the, the original one was the Rubik's cube. That's why I was having the, 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 the swelling issue because it was pressing my esophagus. So it was against my esophagus, my spine, my heart, and my lung. And one lung had collapsed. And then, so we did a PET CT the next morning. You know, again, I'm reading, it says AMAD cancer center. And I'm like, hmm, the machine must be here. Like, who the hell is going to think you're going to have cancer, right? Like, remember, this is 2004. This is not, today is a different world, right? People know and understand. So I was like, oh, machine mm-hmm. must be here, right? Mm-hmm. So I do the, I do the scan and... Uh, and uh, yeah, the next, the same day, 3.30, I walk into the doctor's office. Couldn't go home because, you know, of the radiation to the children. And he says, I'm really sorry, we got bad news. And I said, okay. And he's like, you've got stage three cancer. And that was it. I just collapsed. Right. And it was like the... You're, you're how old are you again? 35. So same age, same age as you. And it was like, I mean, I just crumbled, you know, and then of course he waited my... My now former spice was there and, and, uh, you know, she supported me through the process and then put myself together. And I said, okay, doc, what's the plan? He goes, well, you need to go to hospital now. I said, dude, I'm not going to hospital now. You tell me what time I need to be in hospital and I'll be there. So I negotiated, he agreed to the morning and, um, yeah, I went home and I'd already, I'd already told everybody stop moving my cousin and my brother, because the day before when he saw the x-ray, when I was walking out of the office, his office, he said, whatever God you believe in, please pray. So this is the same guy who's telling me I'm stressing out on my way out says, whatever God you believe in, please pray. 
So I looked at my, you know, spouse at the time and I go, did, did he just say to pray? She goes, yes. I said, okay, tomorrow, it's not going to be a good day, right? Because who, which doc tells you to pray? And so the next day wasn't a good day. And what, what I find when I was looking at some of your story too, I think it's important to note, I mean, you weren't a drinker at all or never done drugs. So they kind of walked through that too, of like why it was in more uncommon than you would have even thought because it just all the things shouldn't have been based on what we, what we think we know. Yeah, look, I, I, I get a checkup every year. Like I said, I, you know, I travel with a medical kit, so I know the drill. I've had the top internist as my doc for, at that time, 12 years. Okay, I mean, he's the dude, even for SARS, he was the main advisor. Yeah, I don't drink. Even till today, I don't smoke. You know, never, had, never tried drugs. I don't drink coffee. I don't drink tea. Um, six months of the year, food was brought to my office and it was, you know, not some rubbish. And I would, I had a gym in my home, you know, at that time as well. And, and uh, so you couldn't imagine, right? Anything like this could happen. The BMI was similar to now, which is, you know, optimal. I'm not, I was six, I was five foot seven, 60 between running between 65, 68 kilos, which is the same today. So it's not like I'm a big guy or whatever the mm -hmm. other things. And then that was, the, that was the real story, right? That when I asked them what happened, they couldn't answer me. And the advisor was the founder of The Cure. So these are two MD Anderson grads. They graduate from the same school. The existing doc is top docs in, in US. You know, you get all those awards, right? Now he's in Hong Kong. And both of them are like, we don't know. So I'm like, wait a minute. So you're telling me that I might drop dead, right? I have stage three cancer. You have the cure to my cancer, but you don't understand how I got it. Like, are you guys for real? And he said, I'm sorry. We don't know. And that's where everything started to be like, look, you know, like I said, we're drillers, right? When it comes to business or anything, right? We need to understand, right? Mm -hmm. And Remember, I had a one-year-old and a three-year-old. I wasn't really ready to go. Yep. And and now and I want to get into uh, depending on how much time we have, a little bit of how your business works today and how you're trying to change things. But before we do that, so I want to know, like, what happened, and what was it like having your paradigm shift that fast? Where I'm crushing it. I'm on the world, top of the world. I'm trying to not only help, you know, people get goods and services that they couldn't get before. I'm making a bunch of money, proving to my family. I mean, like the narrative that you were probably working off of in the operating, underlying operating operating system, and then all of a sudden the rug is just like, poof, and you're just completely thinking about the world completely different. What was that like? So look, I I I I can tell you the advantage I had, which the docs. Um, obviously, you know, I, I negotiated even my, my chemo. So they gave me one round every three weeks and I pushed to get five rounds every three weeks because the probability of success, no, I mean, the probability of survival was pathetic, right? I wasn't, like I said, I wasn't ready to say goodbye, right? So I ended up having five rounds every three weeks for 20 rounds instead of having one every three weeks, right? So, so I, I can tell you the advantage that we had was a few things, right? Number one, I had created a foundation, which is the equivalent of the U.S. trust, when I was 27, okay? So we were prepared, number one. Number two, we didn't run the business top 
heavy in the sense that, yeah, we were the ones doing all the planning, the strategy, all of that. But like I said, you know, if a negotiation takes nine months, not the clothing side, but the other side, we have a pipeline, right? It's not like, you know, in that time, the one year was done, the five year was done. I know the five year is irrelevant today, right? So, so the handover was five minutes in a hospital room. And then again, remember, it's a family business. So there's my brother and my cousin who are handling the other side, but they're still there, right, as backup. So you have a different scenario. But the key is that our role is in Africa, in these countries, is crisis preparation and crisis management. Remember, at any given time, one of those seven countries were in turmoil. So for us, I can walk into an office in the morning and have to block thousands of containers within a day, and that's just my day. You understand? So it wasn't like we were not prepared. And again, we're going to countries and operating in countries that are very different, right? They're very challenging, right? So that, I know it's a different context. I'm not trying to say it's the same, right? Life and death versus this is different, mm-hmm. even though we've had to leave countries for our safety on four-seater DHL mm-hmm. airplanes, okay? So <laughs> we won't go into that story, okay? But, so don't think that everything's been hunky-dory, all right? Um, but... Um, so, yeah, so that was the blessing that because of, you know, that experience of, of hardship, of preparation, there was a lot of calmness, right? But what was not prepared was to die, right? So that preparation, I mean, again, I, I would then do PET CTs, right? So every five rounds, he would do a PET CT because the marker had to go down by 90% for it to be successful. Jeez. So it was like, yeah, 90%, like down by 90. So 10%, 10%, like keep going because it was in the thousands and it's supposed to be up to five. Okay. Yeah. So it had to like, yeah, but that's why I did did that many chemo rounds. Mm -hmm. And so. And you got to tell the listeners too, what you do with your food too. When you're telling me that story, (laughs) you're like, nope. Give me five chemo rounds and jam them up and <laughs> just kind of, you got to tell the listeners. No, but it's, it's, so the thing is that coming back to what I'm saying, right, that, that, that when I did the PET CTs, you know, I would visualize saying goodbye. Okay. And I was able to bring myself as 20 minutes, right? When you're in the machine, your hands up in the air, you close your eyes because it's like a, you know, it's bigger now. The donut's bigger. The donut was smaller in those days. So you feel kind of suffocated. So it's better to close your eyes. And now you, you stick out. The other In the old days, you didn't stick out. So your head wouldn't stick mm-hmm. out now you know, at that time. So, um, so yes, I would visualize and I was able to say goodbye to my cousin, my brother, my parents, my spouse, right? But when it came to the kids, my body would not even oh. let me go there. Oh, horrible, man. And that, horrible. that preparation is what I'm saying was not there. Right. So there was preparation for whatever. Right. You can mm-hmm. say because of those experiences, but the preparation to be able to say goodbye. Right. Um, you know, we just watched a movie last night, Sing Swong or Swong something. There's, I've got to remember. And in there, it's a guy who has who has cancer and his kid is there. His wife is seven, seven months pregnant. And he has the option to not tell them and be cloned. 
right? Oh, weird. Right? Yeah. And, and I won't ruin the story, but there's a part on closure, right? And that preparation of closure is what we've never been trained. At least I hadn't been trained, right? Mm -hmm. Today, it's different. I go to sleep every day in dead man pose. I do a meditation and that's preparation <laughs> to go. And maybe here I am alive, but I'm just going to show death that they, I'm going to give it the big middle finger because I'm just going to lay in the dead man's pose while I sleep. Yeah. I lay in dead man's pose. I do my meditation and I go to sleep because who knows if I wake up tomorrow. Right. So it's, it's a surrender that's very different from before, right? Before that preparation was not there. So to answer your question, the wake up call of, you know, preparing the things, right? The paperwork was done. Everything was done. But I never imagined that, you know, we imagine accidents may be happening when that's why mm -hmm. this preparation was done, right? But never mm -hmm. imagined mm -hmm. disease of this, of this nature. And, and again, right, I mean, you know, I was grateful that it wasn't a heart attack and I just dropped. It was cancer that got, gave me time, gave me time to say I'm sorry, gave me time to think through, gave me time to prepare, right? Of course, it was... It was hell. I can't say it was a walk in the park, right? It was literally living hell. I spent 10 months in and out of hospital. I had 20 rounds of chemo, three surgeries. You know, it was, it was not a, a fun experience. But the paradigm shift happened, right? Where things changed very quickly. Go ahead, sorry. What? Oh, no, 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 no apologies. I mean, it's a, uh, the reason I want this story to sink in is because I think you know, like you said, we're all kind of running and like, I don't know if we all assume, because well, first of all, we don't talk about death that much. And um, it's really interesting because just a small little, uh, data point is, you know, stoicism. And I've, I've, I've kind of uh, scratched the surface in some of these topics. And Benjamin Franklin, one out of every like third thought that he had was I could die at any moment. It's just kind of this weird calibrating uh, effect or like, you know, reverse or live life backwards from your eulogy. But then you just kind of just, then it becomes almost like this part of your system, but you're not anticipating it to actually happen. And you were so young, saw that like, now look, look at how much time you've now got and in a complete different mindset. You know, I think the people listening in about growing these companies and making the impact and all the passion that you had too, you know, how, how, how do you balance the two? And, and and maybe kind of getting into a little bit to some of what you're doing now, but I think it's difficult for people to be able to ha experience some of the success that, you know, today's world teaches us that it is, you know, owning a business, growing it, but then also being happy, man. And like, you know, how many people have been on this damn show that have a, you know, ridiculously large Charles Schwab or Fidelity or TD Ameritrade account and they're miserable. And so how, like, how are you, how do you see, I didn't, I, I didn't feel I was miserable. I didn't think I was miserable. Okay. Um, was I, was I present physically? Yes. Mentally? No. When I look back and they show me photos, there's a lot of photos of me with a kid in my arm, my own kid, of course, and I'm on the phone. Okay. So remember, it's a level of consciousness, a level of awareness of, of, where you are, right? And, and I think, you know, to answer your question of what was missing, right? So today, 
We, you know, we, we run a company where we look at, you know, health and well-being, right? And we focus on integrative health and well-being and integrative family dynamics. And I think what's on the health and well-being side, you're looking at the physicality. And when you look at the physicality, you're looking at nutrition, you're looking at movement, you're looking at sleep, you're looking at gut health, which is something that was not there. Every time I was stressed, my stomach would go. So the gut was not strong right? Sleep was compromised because it was a seven hour, six, seven hour jet lag. I would sleep on the plane at the sleeping time of the destination. So when I'm leaving Hong Kong, it's a six hour time difference. I would go to bed at 3 a.m. on the plane so that I'm sleeping already according to destination. Jet lag was not an option. When I was traveling and when I was uh, versus when I was home, home, like I said, I would have home food delivered, right? And I would work out. When I was traveling, I did not work out. Remember at that time, the hotels didn't have fancy gyms. And in the countries I was in, if you went jogging outside, you may not come back. Okay. Now, of course, at that time, I didn't use my brains to have jump ropes and do all the basic things, right? Then when it came to, then we look at, then we really look at, you know, the, the, the brain health, we look at DNA, epigenetics, right? So you're looking at physicality with a much broader lens. But then we look at mental and emotional health, like what's going on here and what's going on here. So in that space, right, it was, and then beliefs and patterns. So, you know, we were told that nine to fivers are losers, right? That if you didn't work 12 hours a day, you could never be, become someone. So we worked like dogs, right? You know, when in Hong Kong, when, when, you know, Saturday was half day, but it was really a full day. We never went home before three or four, right? When we started to decide to do alternate Saturday, it felt like I was doing a crime. When I took, when, mm. when we said Saturday's off, was as if like, I'm blasphemous, mm. right? I've been That's excommunicated. That's how strong those beliefs are. Yeah. You see, so, so, you know, when it came to work ethic, right? So you really were driven to work like a dog, right? And, and, but again, on this side, there was a lot going on here. So I was physically present, but mentally checked out. But when it came to, the, to that space, you know, as the core CEO, I, ha I didn't have, like today, you have all these coaches and mentors and, 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 and support system, right? I didn't have that. So when I was crumbling, when I didn't know what to do, when I wanted to cry, when I wanted to ask for help, I didn't have anyone. Now, maybe it's 2004. It's an excuse. I was not, you know, not geared and I, I didn't do it right. Okay. I take full responsibility, right? But I didn't have, when I'm having conversations with heads of state about anti-HIV drugs and, and there's a prevalence of 25% and I'm spending time in those hospitals when nobody even wants to go near them because they're scared that they're going to get AIDS. And, you know, at that time we knew because we understood the disease mm -hmm. that you're not going to get it by visiting right? Mm -hmm. Your heart hurts. Mm -hmm. Like it hurts, right? Like you crumble, like you come mm -hmm. back home and you cry. And I say home, I mean, back to your hotel because it's like, and you're walking and you're going to homes and you're seeing poverty. It hurts, right? So that's support to, yeah, it's, it's great to talk. Oh yeah. You know, I want to change the world and I want to you know, bring to the third world all these great things and I want to, you know, democratize fashion. But in the process, you get to see things 
and watch things that are really like, wow. Like you're watching, you're looking at suffering that it's just, I mean, you don't want to even be able to go there, right? It's, it's. Well, yeah, you can't even describe it, right? Yeah, I mean, so, so today when I see COVID, right? When I, when I experience COVID versus what we had to see in those days, it's a different world, mm-hmm. right? It's, mm-hmm. This is, you know, it's sad, you know? So there was no mm-hmm. support for that, right? So the business side support, okay, I get it. You know, it would be helpful, but I think it was more the mental support, the emotional support, right? And then, and then again, the, the unawareness, like on the, the, the third piece is the relational support, right? Of, of having support to understand relationship, to understand that it's, if, you know, if you're going to bring leftovers home and just be a game time at work, you're going to ruin your marriage, you know? So we talk about Let's family. Say that again, because I think that the, the people listening in, that, that it's huge. And I think everybody struggles with that to some degree at some point, unless they're intentionally focusing on making it not happen. Right. So it's, it's, you know, what I learned with, you know, Robin Sharma, because afterwards I started training everybody under the sun and, um, and, and yeah, it's, it's game time, game time that how do you, you know, that they actually do rebounding and, you know, we, you know, we do meditation, whatever, but rebounding in between so that it's game time at work. And then when you come home, it's game time. It's Mm -hmm. not the leftovers because if you give everything at work and you don't, bring anything home i mean if you if you brought leftovers to work what would happen oh i know and and in the people the people that it, there's so much so many thoughts there but like i i think you know you mentioned that like there's a lot more coaches and a lot more resources these days to facilitate. but like you know the problem is sometimes the narrative of what success is supposed to be like gets exacerbated and potentially is worse because you have more information of like you got to go 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 you got to work 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 and you know, you realize that if you bring leftovers at home, well, first of all, the, the person that gets screwed the most is yourself because you end up like yourself, <laughs> huge tumors in your body because your body's just given up. And I, like, and I know we're going to have you back on this show as we're going to be integrating your work today and what you're doing on this kind of integrated medicine and, and understanding how we can use that as entrepreneurs to help have a better relationship with ourselves and, and the business. But like, what would your, well, if you were to go back to yourself and have a conversation about what you know now, how would you describe the, I don't know if it's enlightenment or the, what you think, like how you see the world today, how would you have described that to yourself in the past? No, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, to me, I'm not a fan of this work-life balance because work is part of life. So to me, that's complete nonsense, mm-hmm. but I think it's, it's about, you know, I would, I would seek help, especially on the relationship side, right? To really understand, you know, the whole, you know, the giving and, and taking and the difference between the masculine, the feminine and, and within each of us, right? And, and really get that down, right? Um, then of course I would seek help, which I have, you know, Dr. Shafali is, is the parenting coach that, you know, she's based in New York, top in the world. And really understand, right, that the children come to this world to teach you the lessons you need to learn, right? But I think that I would surround myself with, and I don't, when I said coaches, I didn't mean the coaches, I think that you're referring to the, 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 the 
executive coaches. I'm talking about, you know, in my world, it's, it's really, it's, it's mind trainers, you know, that, that are talk that are helping on the meditation side, like really understanding how do I, I have all this adrenaline and all this, you know, chemicals being mm-hmm. released, right? How do I detox? Mm-hmm. Because what happens is, mm-hmm. you know, I, I was interviewed by, so basically I'll just make a short story. I was interviewed by the Wall Street Journal. There was um, some very senior people in China that were diagnosed with cancer. And all of a sudden the corporate world said, you know, the corporations are responsible. They're creating stress. So I went on and I said, I completely disagree. All innovation, creativity, and progress happens technically in a state of stress because stress is being out of your comfort zone. The issue is Mm -hmm. not the stress. The issue is the inability to de-stress. So we have not been trained to de-stress. Therefore, that stress becomes toxic because it lingers. If we we have the basics. So what happens today is I go to the gym, I release. I go to the gym, I release. That's what the most people are doing. But the question mm-hmm. is, how do I learn to change the meaning of what happens so I don't react, but rather respond? And that gym is not going to teach you. Yeah. Pumping iron is mm-hmm. not going to teach you. Meditation yep. is the easiest way. Now, there are other forms. Mm-hmm. You could do yoga. Mm-hmm. You could do all kinds of things, right? But that's the simplest, fastest way, right? So it would be to have people, whether they're psychotherapists, whether they're mind trainers, whether they're, you know, um, a different form of coach, right? And then, Mm -hmm. of course, to make the food habit and the workout while I was traveling non-negotiable, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's a big, uh, it's a big list, you know, but, but it would be, it would be surround myself with that, but at the same time, walk the talk. You say, Mm -hmm family first, you say the kids and your spouse are the most important things in your life, but your video and audio doesn't match because two things don't lie, your schedule and where you spend your money. Where I spend the money was okay, but the schedule was clearly saying bullshit. Do you, th- do you think you would add, one- yeah, do you think you'd add one more to that? If we could read, e- read someone's thoughts, what were your mind's what where you're at in your mind and then you give a moment too, which we <laughs> we could lie ourselves into oblivion but you know like you said going back to that picture with your kid you know you're there but your mind's not and it's interesting man I, i'm so excited to jump into the the next episode when we when we get you on for that because i uh i i consider myself crazy lucky because i fell into some interesting good habits that my fear of not having those good habits it was what drove me to keep them. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I might be, I might be a total psychopath if I don't keep working out and <laughs> and doing these things. And but it's interesting because I've been working out at lifting and exercise now, or uh, and running for it's like 17 years or so. And I just started doing transcendental med- meditation in the morning and in the evenings in the, like last 18 months. And you hit that detox comment. Yeah, no matter how no no amount of running or or lifting can get my head <laughs> screwed back on the right and, way. And your heart. Still working on and it. And your heart. Yeah. So fascinating, man. And so one, uh, before we wrap up here, just to kind of what everybody's appetite, can you just give like a, a couple minute overview of 
your approach. You kind of mentioned a little bit of the mind relationships and physical, but you're no joke, man. And when I say that is like, you know, people can go and they can go to some, you know, where they think it's like meditation, just the head, but then they're like, but I'm really hurting physically or like I've got bad relationship issues. So like, you, like I think the level of uh, attention that you, you said were drillers, the level of attention after Wharton that you went into probably Wall Street and your company, I can only imagine what you've done with the business that you have now. So just kind of give everybody the overview of the business and the, the, the approach, because that'll set us up for um, diving into how, what we can actually do about this stuff. Okay. Thanks, Ryan. So basically, look, um, what's happening today, whether we look at succession, whether we look at a medical issue, whether we look at the coaching that you're referring to, executive coaching, what's happening is everything's happening in silos and nobody's communicating. And there's no, in American terms, point guard quarterback, right? So what we've, what we found most effective, like I say, you know, we're business guys, right? So we like most bang for the buck, right? And when I say bang, I don't, I don't buck, I don't mean dollars. I mean, time, energy, resource, right? And, Mm -hmm. and so the idea is that what we realize is that when you're operating in silos, there's a lot of leakage. When I say leakage, there's a lot of things that could be nipped very quickly if there was communication and coordination. So basically our approach, again, it's two key pieces. One is health and well-being, and one is family dynamics, right? They're both related, but they're, they're there, and it's integrative. So we're, our approach is to bring in a team of experts that work together, right? And we are at 30,000 feet, able to see the whole picture and be able to share what's on a need-to-know basis, right, with them. So what happens is when we begin, like on the health and well-being side, you start with what we call eight steps to self-discovery, right? So we look at, we do a health consciousness scale, right, to see where are you in the different pieces of health. We do a life stages assessment to see where are you in terms of human development, your relationships, and, and your impact. Then we begin the journey, which is eight different expert reviews. So you've already had two experts, then you have, and there you look at your medical infrastructure, right? Really looking at you from a medical perspective, historically, medical teams, you know, um, medical records, all that nine yards. Then we look at drivers of behavior. What is driving your behavior in terms of relationship, nutrition, fitness? Then we look at gut health, brain health, and sleep health. Then we go... Then we do DNA and epigenetics, but again, only nutrition, fitness, sleep, and supplements. Then we get into the mental and the emotional. What's going on in this process? And how is this process impacting you in all realms? Then we look at beliefs and patterns, all the goodies we collected as a child from our parents or grandparents or in the family bleed through. Again, it's the epigenetics piece. Then we look at the relational side where you're looking at relationship with yourself, right? Relationship with your loved ones, the story driving your life. My story was, am I good enough? Which is the story of a majority of people, right? That's one of the Mm -hmm. chapters Mm -hmm. in in my book. And then we look at, you know, alignment. Am I living in alignment in my truth, in my authenticity between my values, my talents, my aspirations? Am I living in truth? So that's a, a 12-week process of self-discovery. And from there, I get to see me, the whole human, from a physical, mental, emotional, and relational perspective, right? So this is a 360 that doesn't exist anywhere else, right? The 360s happen 
in their own little circles, right? So I've done the stages. I just did leadership circle, right? I did a 360 on me, which was quite a few interesting things that came up. We can talk about in the next, next, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited right? to hear. and then we do a similar process on the family dynamic side. So we begin again, we do the human consciousness. We do the stages, right? To understand where am I in human development? Then we begin with individual dynamics. Who am I vis-a-vis the family system? Who do I want to be? And who am I expected to be? Then we look at drivers of behavior, but only from a relational perspective, focused on relationships, right? So again, who am I with myself, my loved ones, my spouse, my kids, if I have, and of course, the family system. Then we look at communication. But when we look at communication, we're looking at nonverbal. Like here I am doing all these hand gestures. For you and me and the audience, it could be okay. But if I did that with Mm -hmm. the boys, who are now 18 and 20, by the way, it might be a very different response. So you're looking at the nonverbal, mm-hmm. you're looking at the tonality, right? Because that is 97, 93% of communication is, is non-gesture and tonality. Then we look mm-hmm. at the alignment piece, right? Again, where am I? Am I living in truth? And then we do a group collective dynamic where everybody's in the room and we do a facilitation and we're watching what's going on. And then we create an individual report and a collective report. So it's really, again, going in to uncover. And you know, I just wrote an article for FFI, which is, which is bridging the human system with the family system. Because most advisors are going, doing work on the, on the individual, but not as much as needed and going straight to the family. And so what happens is, is that the individual for whom we've created this family business, for whom we've created all this wealth, is not taken care of from our perspective the way that they should deserve whatever word you want to use, which I know sounds like I'm imposing, but I'm going to impose anyway. I I love it. I love it so much because, first of all, I've had, I got plenty of my own personal experiences of how disjointed all those are. And Anybody that's listening knows how messed up the U.S. healthcare system is. And we, we, we've now gotten to this point where your mind is completely integrated with your body. And when you're not feeling good, you don't think good. And when you don't think good, you're – and you just listen to a bunch of stuff. That's why I said it's not just foo-foo stuff. It's like, oh, and by the way, we're going down into science and all the yes. way back up into br- the, the brain health yeah. and all this stuff. And, and like you said, the leakage is where – I think a lot of us feel this. They, we just don't know how to put words to it. And you're starting to do that. And I, I got to say that I can't thank you enough because you're, it's Monday morning and I got you before your workout. Thank God. <laughs> but uh, we're going to get you on for uh, Fasal on that, uh, the first theme series that for the listeners, we're going to be doing some cool stuff after episode 300 about kind of packaged up themes. We're going to talk about one about personal drivers and we're going to be diving further into this because I think every business owner who runs that many, there's so many stakeholders. Fasal, you know that, like so many stakeholders and you're one human being and you're showing up different and having all that imbalance, like you said, it's integrated. It's not, it's not compartmentalized. And so if you can help us with that, man, I, I trust me, I think we all know that we're only one degree away from psychopaths. Isn't that what the, isn't that what the, no, I, I, the, I, I the, believe the, it this. very differently. I say you're, it's one degree of separation to find someone to help you to care, 
to bring self-love and self-care. A, a little different. There you go. I'm, I'm, on the, <laughs> I'm, like, I'm on the other side of the fence. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm going to come join you on that side then. <laughs> yeah, so. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, two final questions. One, the word intentional, name of the show. I like the word a lot. And I, I love hearing what people, meet, what they think it means to them. So what does the word intentional mean for you? Look, our whole, our whole foundation is based on that, right? We say in Arabic, you know, is niya. What is the niya, which is what is your intention, right? And, and without that, nothing has meaning. So it's all about intentionality that every, like, so when our experts work, their intention is if this was the last conversation I'm going to have with this human being, how can I empower him or her so that she, he or she can move forward in an incredible, so not, it's all about empowerment. It's all about, not about crutches. So Nia is, is the foundation for everything and every, like, again, before we began, what's the Nia we had, right? Mm-hmm. We had a little catch mm-hmm. up before we began to align on our Nia, which is the intentionality. So Nia. funny I love, enough. I love it. I like it. I like it. And then where can people find you, your material, your book, and then, uh, and we'll put all the links in the show notes too. So it's, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the company is Chineticare. So Q-I-N-E-T-I-C-A-R-E. So chi, which is energy, which is everything, right? Net and then I care. So network and then caring for self first, right? The oxygen mask. And um, the book is called Four Steps to Flow. It's available on Amazon um, in paperback and in Kindle form. So that's pretty easy. And um, yeah, and then on LinkedIn, you just look up my name and, you know, you'll find uh, me on LinkedIn if, 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 if you're on there. So those are kind of, you know, the, um, the ways to reach out and uh, or kind of stay connected with uh, the crazy guy in Hong Kong. <laughs> Vasal, thank you so much for spending the time with me and the audience. Uh, looking forward to uh, having you back on in the near future. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. Absolute honor and privilege. Thank you for reaching out and uh, allowing me the honor and privilege to share. And I hope uh, it will be of value. I shared a few things that I've never done publicly, the misdiagnosis, the actual story of what happened in Bali. So um, something uh, dear to my heart. And I hope yeah, that we'll uh, have honored. people think about, you know, the anti-gravity piece and, and a few other things. So again, thank you. Thank you. Well, I hope you're thinking about what you're doing today and whether it's things that you want to be doing and if it's getting you towards a direction and growing you towards a more fulfilled life, a more fulfilled business, a more fulfilled ecosystem of the people around you. I just think about Fiesel's story and, you know, I'm really, really, really excited for the things that he's doing with his uh, company because Geneticare can, I mean, it's a completely different approach towards integrated health and medicine. And I think there's an aspect of how he's tackling the human health and the human body and mind is how we also need to, you know, it, it takes that level of awareness on how we treat our business and how we, our business interacts with uh, our, ourselves, our relationships and 
you know, the, the physical stress that it can create sometimes, which, you know, Fiesel mentioned about his story and I'm excited for people to tune in. And I think we're targeting around May or June when we're launching this new uh, format of the podcast. We're going to bring him back in to talk about the relationship that you have with your business and how your identity and the relationship and the time that you spend in the business can truly impact your relationships outside the business, but your health and your wealth and your, and your well-being. So, I really hope you enjoyed this interview with Fiesel. If again, if you haven't checked out the Intentional Growth Financial Assessment that helps you understand where you're at today with the business and how your financials can actually give you clarity to bridge the roadmap to where you are today and what that value is that you want long-term so you can create the choices. So, you know, if something happens like what Fiesel's talking about, you can pull the trigger and you can still get what you want and focus on dealing with the hard things that are in front of you. Thanks everybody for tuning in and I will see you next week.